and I went to Ecuador last year um, in August, and it was a really amazing experience. I'm really happy I went. Um, definitely took some trust in God to leave our two-year-old daughter at home with my parents for the full week, but um, we just felt like we were called to do it, and um, timing-wise, it worked out perfectly, and it was really a life-changing experience. And what were some of the highlights of being in Ecuador? What did you do? Yeah, so um, every day was a little bit different, which I thought was was really cool. Um, some of the highlights were definitely hanging out in the jungle with the kids and doing, you know, kids ministry while our medical professionals did the, um, the doctor doctoring, <laughs> whatever. Um, so really fun to just kind of love on the kids down there and um, just meet their families and spend some time with them. I think the best part was really just getting to know Steve and Sandy as people and um, just connecting with them and forming relationships that are, you know, long lasting and, and beyond just that one trip, you know, staying in contact with them even now, almost a year down the line is really cool. Just being able to see what God's doing in another country with a totally different culture. So I think that was the best part. Uh, can you talk just briefly about La Fuente and the church mm -hmm. down there? Like, what was your experience like there? Yeah, uh, La Fuente is the church that Stephen Sandy had planted in Quito. Um, that was our first day uh, in Ecuador. We were able to go to church service there. And that was, I mean, it's an awesome experience because getting to uh, getting to worship with people in a, a different language, a different culture, um, but still having the same heart behind um you know, what's going on was really neat. So even if we didn't necessarily understand what was going on in, in the sermon or the songs, because I speak only very little Spanish, um, it was just really neat being able to connect with them on a totally different level, just knowing that we're all worshiping the same God. And how has this Ecuador trip impacted you since? Like, what connections do you still maintain and yeah, I just, uh, like I said, I think it's really great. We stay in contact with Steve and Sandy pretty regularly, and we're, um, you know, praying for praying for them, what's going on in their personal lives and what's, what's going on in their ministry. And conversely, they're praying for us, too. So I just think that, um, again, the best part of the trip and the best part of this whole experience is just connecting with other members of God's family, I guess, and just knowing that there are other folks who are um, doing amazing work throughout the globe and, um just getting to be a very small piece of that and, and just observing that and, and witnessing it and being able to tell people about it is, is pretty cool. And what would you say to anybody considering going this summer? Words of encouragement or just do what, would it. You, what, would you say, what would you say to the team? Um, I think that going into the trip with an open mind and just um, an open heart, getting ready to um, just meet people and um, really, again, just kind of, observe what God is doing and, and be ready to um, just kind of meet whatever challenge might come up. And, and that challenge might not be something super physical or, or super demanding in, in terms of, you know, physical labor or anything. It might just be talking with the family or offering to pray with the family or getting to know Steve and Sandy and their, and their um, you know, their extended family. It's um, not always about the heavy lifting and, and building the construction, those sort of things. It's, it's about building relationships and, um, just kind of um, being the hands and feet and um, ears, I guess, of Jesus. Thank you, Jackie. You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you so much to the Garcias for putting that together for us. And um, 
Yeah, we want to just give you a heads up that if you have uh, even a sliver of interest in, in going, um, go to the meeting next week. There's one more informational meeting next week. Uh, the first of May, is that, is that next week of the first? It is the first of May. Uh, it's before the first service at 8.15 a.m. next week. And just come here, more details. You're not committing to going. You're just coming to hear more details about the trip. And I just want to ask you uh, to really consider it. We have a few slots left. Um, it's filling up pretty good. But we've been praying that God would provide 25 people to go. And I think that would be phenomenal for the life of our church, for the DNA of our church, for the instilling of the value of neighbors and nations. And so um, if you want to know God's heart, um, we challenge you to have a cross-cultural experience because our God is a cross-cultural God. And so I um, just want to challenge you to consider it. And maybe this year is not a great year, and that's fine. <clears throat> and that's fine. But think about that for the future. In addition, um, one other quick announcement before we dive in. You guys got a Slack message or an email this week, unless you're brand new today. Uh, if you're brand new today, welcome. Um, but if you're not brand new, you got a Slack or an email about our summer studies. And I'm not a huge fan of the title study, uh, summer studies, even though that's probably what I gave it personally, because it sounds too academic. And uh, following Jesus is not only an intellectual pursuit, but it's, a, it's an all-of-life pursuit. So summer studies for the sake of our discipleship, for the sake of furthering and continuing our love for Jesus. And so we've got a, just a sweet lineup of seven different studies that I would commend. To, I mean, I, I'd want to personally take all of them. I, and I'm not joking. I, I wish you all could take all of them because this really, really good content. We got stuff on just discipleship and missions and how to manage money well and the, uh, the nations and uh, counseling and counseling one another in a, just an informal church kind of setting. Parenting. A lot of young parents in the room. We encourage you to take that one. Um, but any of them, how to engage winsomely in a culture uh, with our words. Um, so check those out. Don't blow off those messages. Read it and see what we're doing this summer. It's a great touch point to get to know people that aren't in your city group as well, because these are typically just, uh, just a kind of a terminal thing just for the summer. And then you'll be back to regular city group life in the fall. But meet more people, have just a little kind of conveyor belt experience where you get on and you get off uh, for the summer. And uh, it's great. We did it last year, and we have all new summer studies this year. So check those out in those messages you got this past week, okay? All right, so I want everybody to do a thought experiment with me. I want you to think of someone in your life who you would define as wise. So think of someone in your life, either has been in your life or is currently in your life, who you would define as wise. They embody true wisdom. Okay? Got that person in mind? Now I want you to think about how did they carry themselves? What were they like generally? Okay? How did they use their words, their speech, conversation? How did they use their money? How did they interact with others? Like, how did they carry themselves in interpersonal relationships? How did they interact in the workplace? If they had kids, how did they carry themselves as parents? 
So you got that person in mind. And you can visualize in your head right now, as I'm asking you to do this, how, how they were. How, how you, you, you've said that they're wise, so and you've got a p- mental picture now of what wisdom looks like, right? When I asked you to personify wisdom, someone came to mind, right? Now, the question becomes for us this morning, why that person? Why did you pick that person? Well, the reason why you pick that person is because we all have kind of a default definition of what wisdom is. And I said, who's wise? And you took that default definition that you probably didn't even know that you had, and you thought of that person, you go, okay, there's a correspondence between my understanding of what wisdom is and how this person lives their life. And they meet, right? So the point is this, we all have kind of a default definition of what wisdom looks like. And we can all intuitively kind of go, okay, who's a wise person? Oh, yeah, okay. It's like that guy or, or, or that gal that's been in my life. But the question is, where did that definition of wisdom come from? Where did that definition of wisdom come from? And how do we know that this definition that we all have, that we just practiced, that we just used, like where did it come from and, do I, and is it correct? Do I have the right definition of wisdom and how would I know? Who gets to say ultimately what is wise and what's not wise? Like he, who gets to define wisdom and, and then on what basis? Like, like says who, right? Where does a vision for wisdom come from? Now here's the thing. Thankfully, we don't have to drown in a sea of relativism when it comes to answering these questions, we don't, have to, we don't have to, like, debate, like, uh, talking heads on 24-7 news cycle. Like, we've got a fixed standard. If you're a Christian this morning, you have a fixed standard when it comes to the definition of wisdom. And this is the good news for us today as we launch a new series in the book of Proverbs in the Bible. God has spoken in his word, and he's spoken a lot about wisdom, about what it means to be wise. The God of the universe, personified in Jesus Christ, has spoken in his word, the Bible, and has much to say about the life of wisdom. And that's what we're going to be looking at through all the way to the end of the summer, for about four months now. What we're going to be looking at is what does the Bible say when it comes to wisdom? What does it mean to be wise? How should we handle ourselves in the, in the nitty-gritty of life? In the everyday experiences that I rattled off just a second ago in our thought experiment, how do I handle my money? How do I handle parenting? How do I handle relationships? How do I handle justice? How do I think about the poor and the needy? How do I think about my mouth and the things that I say? What's best in so many different life situations that we encounter every single day? So check this out. This is what the Proverbs say right out of the gate in terms of what it means to be wise. And I want to lay this, this whole sermon today is just foundation for the coming weeks in the book of Proverbs. Okay, that's what this is. And here's foundation number one. This is what the book of Proverbs says about the nature of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom 
and instruction. And then a few chapters later, it says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So you see here, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So it's not just the beginning of wisdom is whatever you want it to be. It's not the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, well, just sit real hard and sit, sit down and think real hard about it and hope that you come up with something good. No. The definition is the first few words there, the fear of the Lord. So said differently, there's no wisdom apart from the Lord. There's no wisdom apart from the reverencing, the respecting, the fear of the Lord in the Bible doesn't mean like nightmare fear, like I'm scared out of my mind. The fear of the Lord in this, in this context means like reverence and respect and honor and cherishing and delighting in and listening to. That's what the fear of the Lord means. So the Bible's claim, God's claim Right out of the gate, beginning of the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, chapter 9, is that true wisdom is a Godward pursuit. True wisdom is a God-centered pursuit. If you want wisdom, you're going to pursue the Lord for it. There's no wisdom apart from the Lord. He just says that to us. There's no wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord. Let me me read it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So we have a contrast between the wise and the fool, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So no wisdom apart from God. That's a bold claim. It's a bold claim. Because all throughout our culture, we've got all these competing visions of what it means to be wise. But the Bible comes to us and says, those competing visions, they don't measure up. This is the vision of wisdom. And it begins with reverencing, respecting, knowing, cherishing, delighting in, listening to the Lord, God himself, Jesus. And what's so exciting as we dive in in these weeks is that we actually have a source for knowing God, and it's his word. His word is spoken to us as a gift. So we can know wisdom. We don't have to sit around and debate. God has told us what wisdom looks like. And so we don't have to feel isolated and alone as we try to figure it out. God has told us. And so we get the opportunity and the joy of listening all summer long. So we're really excited about that as we kick off this new series in the book of Proverbs. So to lay some more foundation, I want to just do three things in the rest of this talk and then we'll be done, okay? And today it's going to be a little more teaching than it is necessarily preaching. And maybe you don't know the difference between those two, and sometimes I don't either. But what I mean is simply that um, there's just some stuff that I want you to know. Not that it won't speak to your heart, but usually um, I, I try to aim for the heart and not as much as just preach to the mind for straight academic things. Um, This isn't strictly academic, and it does reach to your heart, but there's just some baseline stuff that we have to know when it comes to handling the book of Proverbs, and that's what we're going to do today. So I just want you to know these things and and apply them as we move forward, because without these things in our journey through the book of Proverbs, we can get really messed up, okay? So here's three things that we want you to know and embrace as we move forward in Proverbs. Number one, I'm going to give you a word of warning. 
Number two, I want to give you a word of interpretation. And number three, I want to give you a word about Jesus and the Proverbs. So a word of warning when it comes to reading the Proverbs, a word of interpretation when it comes to understanding the Proverbs, and then a word about Jesus and the Proverbs, and then we'll be done. So first, um, a word of warning as we read the Proverbs. So just baseline rule in reading your Bible, okay? Some of you know this, some of you don't. So uh, let it be a review or let it be new information. Um, When you're reading the Bible, no matter what, you always want to know who the original audience is. So if you open up to the New Testament and you're reading in the book of Ephesians, you always want to know if you're interpreting that book for yourself, you want to know first, how was it understood by the Ephesians 2,000 years ago? How was it understood by this church in a city in Turkey uh, modern-day Turkey. Is that right? Modern-day Turkey, right? Yeah. Uh, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. Well, back 2,000 years ago, it wasn't Turkey. It was something else. And there were people that lived there, and there was a church that was planted there. And this, this, this letter that we read called Ephesians was written to them. And so I got to understand them before I seek to understand how this word applies to me. Okay? And so... That's really, really important in reading your Bible. And it's also very important when we're just talking about the Proverbs. Okay? So who was the audience, the first audience in the book of Proverbs? Well, it's people that had already been redeemed by God. The nation of Israel, Jewish people. Okay? They were called out by God. They were, they, 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 they were told that they were a people of God's own possession those, these people had a secure identity, okay? Here's one example of this that we can see in the Old Testament the, the, about the original audience of the book of Proverbs. So this is those people. And the Lord, this is Moses talking to them, and he says to them, he says, the Lord has declared today that you are, okay? This is an identity statement. It's not a you used to be. It's not a if you want to try hard, you will be. No, it's this is who you are, okay? The identity is secure. Then the Lord has declared today that you are, a people for his own possession, okay? So you got a special relationship with God as he has promised you and that you are to keep all his commandments and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in high honor above all nations that he has made and that you shall be a people holy to the Lord your God as he promised. Let's go back to verse 18. I want you to camp out on this. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people of his treasured possession, okay? So the book of Proverbs was written to these people, okay? People that knew that they had already been saved. Okay, saved from what? Saved from the hand of Pharaoh. These people had been enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, okay? And God did this mighty act of salvation. It's the ultimate act in the Old Testament. New Testament, it's resurrection and, and, and crucifixion of Jesus. Old Testament, it's right here. It's the parting of the Red Sea, the saving of God's people through the Red Sea, and the judgment on God's enemies in the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies. So God's people have been rescued and saved. And then God comes to them and says, you are my people, people of my own possession, You've been saved by me, and now you're mine. You're my special people. I love you. I'm a father, and you are my children. Okay, so the Proverbs are written to a people that already had a secure, saved identity. Okay, I want you to know that. Does that make sense? 
And, and the Proverbs come along to these people, to the original audience, and they know this. They, they, it says to them, since you've been saved, not if you want to be saved, but since you've been saved, original audience, that identity is secure, here's what now your life is going to look like. Here's part of what your life should look like. It should look like the Proverbs. Here's what wisdom look like, looks like for my people who love me, love my word. And that's your identity. Since you've been saved by me, here's how I want you to live. I want it to look like the Proverbs, okay? And it's the same exact process with us as New Testament Christians today. And so a very important theme that we have to know as we understand the Proverbs today is this. If you've been saved by treasuring and trusting God and his promises— then your faith that is real, it's going to look like something, just like for the original audience. What's it going to look like? Well, pr partly the Proverbs are probably what it's going to look like. But notice what I didn't say, just like we're rehearsing this again for us. I didn't say, if you want to be saved, you better start looking like the Proverbs. No, I didn't say that. The church is God's people. And if you treasured and trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're a Christian. You're saved, and you can know that you have a heavenly Father, and, and that you can be His treasured possession, and that He desires to have a relationship with you. And once you know that, your life is going to be transformed by grace. When you live in light of grace and not works, that understanding radically changes your life. And that change is going to have a tangible effect in your life that you live. It's going to look like something. Okay? And what it might look like is the book of Proverbs. Now, just to be clear, we don't earn our salvation by our performance, by following the principles of the Proverbs, right? If you have been saved and know Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure and trust, we strive to follow the principles in the Proverbs because we have been saved. Grace has to radically change your life. If it doesn't, then you don't get it. But it's not that I, that I look to these words in the, in the Scripture and go, man, I got I to gotta measure up and I got to perform or else God's not going to love me anymore. It's either... Massive pride if I succeed or massive guilt if I fail. It's, it's either arrogance on one side because look how great I am. Man, I'm measuring up. I'm doing great. Man, God, you should save me because look how awesome I am. Or absolute despondency because you can't ever measure up. And that's not how grace works. See, grace works this way. It's neither pride nor despondency it's simply a, a, a recognition that you know you can't do it. You come to the end of yourself and go, God, I'm needy. God, I'm willing to cast myself on your mercy because I can't bring this about myself. I see that I've come to the end of myself and I have to look outside of myself because I don't have the faculties or the capabilities to manufacture the goodness that I know that you require because you're God and you're holy. I can't do that on my own. I'm simply incapable and then you cast yourself on his mercy and he says, yes, I will save you. Now you're ready to listen when you've come to the end of yourself. 
And knowing that grace that comes by by a gift, when you come to the end of yourself and say, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. And he says, I'm willing to take you. Not because you're so great, but because I'm great and my mercy loves to be shined all over this universe. See, when you get that, then it makes you thankful. Then it makes your heart love. Then it makes you really, really um, recognizing that God has met your need and you to meet your need for yourself. And that changes your life. That changes your life. So we strive and we work hard to look like the Proverbs, but not out of an orientation of merit, not out of an orientation of earning anything. Everything's been earned already for you if you're a Christian. We strive and we work hard because we love God, because we love Jesus, because we're thankful, before we rec- because we recognize what he's done, okay? And his grace just blows our mind and makes us so thankful. We're like, yes, I, lo- I love God. How could I not in light of this mercy he's shown me? I have this massive $8 billion debt and he just paid it. How does that not change your life? So we have to, de- I'll say all this because it's so important because we just, our default setting as people is to seek to earn and merit our salvation. That's just, you, your feet hit the floor every morning and you don't even realize it, but that's how you're wired. And Christianity wants to detox us of all of that. Because when we try to earn and merit, we either get real prideful or real despondent. And neither one of it, because we either measure up in our minds, even though we don't, but we think we do, it makes us prideful, or we, we're fully aware of our failures, and we're just depressed. And the gospel addresses both. It says it's neither. It's just a humble recognition of gratitude and faith in what Jesus has done. All right, so we got to detox of this desire to prove our salvation. Let me just give you an example from the Proverbs. This is how this could really go south. Oh, oh gosh. I'm having a problem here with this deal. Um, it'll be all right. 